This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. This podcast is sponsored by DonorBox. DonorBox, helping you help others with the best donation forms in the business. Hello, podcast listeners. Well, I know I've had a lot of conversations with fellow nonprofit executives and nonprofit leaders asking the question, what does it look like to have a successful collaboration between a government agency and a nonprofit organization? It's a great question. In fact, I've had a lot of guests talk about this. I've had discussions around this. This is a really important topic. I've said multiple times how I just really believe that uh, the problems we're facing, whether it be hunger, you know, food insecurity, housing affordability, uh, a lot of these issues that we're facing as a country, as a world, they're too big for any one entity to try to tackle them alone, let alone just the nonprofit sector, say, as a whole. I think this is going to be one of those things where we need to work together, right, as much as possible government agencies, nonprofit sector, the for-profit sector, or the private sector. And today's guest is a really good example of how a nonprofit organization is working well with government agencies. My guest today is Ann Lee. She is the co-founder and CEO of CORE, C-O-R-E, and that is a nonprofit organization that works all over the world, actually. And she co-founded it with Sean Penn. Yes, the actor Sean Penn. And they started this organization in response to the huge earthquake in 2010 that impacted Haiti. So, and that's when they started the organization, and they've really grown since. In fact, during my discussion, she'll share how they just exploded in growth during COVID. And one of the main reasons was they had this really unique and effective process of providing testing clinics, essentially. And they became so good at it and so efficient, the mayor of Los Angeles reached out to them and asked them to implement it for the city of Los Angeles. And then once they did that, then the city of Chicago, the mayor of Chicago actually reached out to them and said, hey, could you do it up here? And then all of a sudden they got on the map and all over the country, people began to reach out to them to say, hey, could you implement these testing sites in our community? So they really got on the map and really grew exponentially in the United States, let alone what they were doing you know, globally. And so why I think it's so important is towards the end of the conversation, you'll hear me ask the question about what did that look like to work with this government agency in LA first and then in Chicago and then beyond that. And she shares some great insights of what it looks like to me to be successful when it comes to collaborating with government agencies, which is my mind is what all of us should be doing as much as we can. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. You may want to take a few notes. And as always, thanks for tuning in today. Enjoy today's show. Well, Ann, thanks so much for being on the show today. Today, we're going to be talking about crisis response, specifically crisis response that brings immediate aid and recovery to underserved communities across the globe. Now, far too often, those most impacted by disaster consistently are those who also can suffer from consistent inequalities. And much of the traditional relief given in response to these disasters often doesn't reach those most in need. And that's where my guest organization comes in today. And so glad to have you on the show again. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for giving us a platform. We love talking about what we do. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, for my listeners, you'll read about this in the bio and and the link on this podcast when we post this. She helped start this organization with Sean Penn. Yes, the actor Sean Penn. And I understand the core was started in 2010 in response to a violent 7.0 magnitude earthquake that struck Haiti. So maybe tell us a little bit about the origins of how core started and what really drove the mission of this organization. Sure. At the time, I had been living in Haiti for about four years when the earthquake hit. It was one of the largest disasters that we had seen since the big tsunami in um, Southeast Asia. About an estimated 200,000 people were affected, which is mind-blowing, and an entire city was brought to its knees. And unfortunately, a number of response organizations like the UN, as well as the larger groups like American Red Cross and IRC, they had also lost a lot of people in that disaster because they were based in Port-au-Prince where the 7.0 earthquake had hit. So the response was very, very difficult. It was one of the early complex crises that we've experienced given that it was such an urban area with so many different layers of complexity with um, poverty as well as a lot of corruption So, you know, Sean came in with some medical supplies thinking he was only going to be there for about two weeks and actually saw that there was a huge gap. A lot of the organizations were struggling to kind of respond in this massive crisis. And so he ended up staying for about nine months living there. And over that period of time, he and I had met and really sort of connected. And it was phenomenal to see sort of like an outsider and that perspective of fresh ideas and kind of looking at things totally differently. And we really, really developed a kinship and since then stayed in touch. And then in 2016, I joined the organization, which he had created during that time called JPHRO. And then we revamped it and now it's called CORE. Oh, that's excellent. So always interesting to learn how nonprofits get started and what the cause was that, you know, initiated something as uh, now as wide reaching as what CORE is doing. And I know that you've had this experience now. You've seen too often in the process of aid being distributed in response to a crisis situation like the one you mentioned in Haiti, that aid does not always get to those most impacted. As we said, these marginalized populations often can remain in this never-ending cycle of poverty and disaster. From your experience, why do you think this is such a cyclical issue? You know, we find it very frustrating in that it's not something new. I think we're all aware of it who respond in this this sector. Unfortunately, we're in an extremely supply-driven model where organizations that have things bring those things down. And it's very, very siloed where we also respond in specific sectors. Our meetings and our sort of framework is all divided in those sectors, housing, water, food, education, you know. And so with that, you kind of miss out on sort of the demand driven model, which is what people need, where they need it and how they need it. We haven't really figured out a solution to that. And it's it needs to be fixed. We're sort of using the same tools that we've been using 50 years ago, and it hasn't changed. And we need to change that. I think really looking at things in a more holistic way is really important. And kind of flipping the switch to have it a, ma- a much more demand-driven approach is really important. How we do that, I think we have, you know, we have technology at our fingertips now. I think that we can. I think it's in our reach. Core is actually looking at that and developing 
an app-based tool that is also very, very accessible for sort of, you know, folks who don't have digital access so that we can look at how can we deliver aid in a much more demand-driven way. That's excellent. Well, that's the great segue into tell us about the unique approach that CORE has when it comes to how you respond to these crisis situations. And why do you think your approach has been more effective than traditional relief? Again, I think it's because we're much more holistic. We don't, you know, there's a, there's the, it's a double-edged sword, right? On one side, it's so much easier when you're an organization to say, we do education, we do water, (laughs) you know, people understand that. And it's a much easier quote unquote sell, right? Our organization doesn't have that specific focus. There's things that we normally do and we have expertise in, but for us, it's really important to get down on the ground and to understand what do people need and kind of bring the many things that communities normally need to recover so that it looks like, you know, it's not just like the food, water, shelter, but looking at livelihoods, looking at longer term housing solutions, looking at, you know, where can we make sure that people can send their kids safely to school or someplace safe to be during the recovery phase. So each disaster is quite unique. There are components that you see over and over again. But I do think what differentiates us is that we are able to kind of think of things in a much more holistic way. And it's not to say that we do everything. There's so many amazing groups that do their sectoral thing very well. And that's why it's important for us to partner. So collaboration and coordination and partnership is at the core of everything that we do. We have incredible partners that bring health health support. We have other partners that bring food. We have other partners that bring you know diapers and baby formula. So we don't try to do everything. We just try to know everyone and then try to bring those pieces in as needed. I know. I like how you're um, describing that. And obviously it's been working for you. CORE really does emphasize working directly with uh, people in the community, which we're going to get to in just a second. But maybe just to give uh, flavor for my listeners, of course, the war in Ukraine, the devastating fire in Maui, both of those are recent things that are in the news quite a bit. They Particularly the, the fire in Maui was just in the news all the time, 24-7 there for a while. And I saw that on your website that you're doing some work there. So maybe give us a bit of a front lines perspective on what's going on in both those situations. Share as much as you'd like. But And what's your assessment so far from your point of view? What really is needed? And then how has CORE been able to really go to those root issues and get to relief to those who need it most? So it's, those are very good examples because it's so diverse, right? Ukraine is a long-term crisis that we expect is going to last for years. You know, we are working on two tracks right now. We are looking at providing immediate support to the front lines, you know, communities that still need fuel, water, food, basic materials. And now that winter's coming again, winterization. But we're also looking at how can we ensure that the displaced are being housed in not just emergency settings, because it's now been over a year, it's been about a year and a half, and looking at longer term housing solutions. So we set up an incredible rental housing system. So basically, you know, where there are a thousand families um, housed in Lviv in gyms, we're decompressing those emergency shelters because it's just sort of open, you know, on the gym floor and giving those families opportunities to actually find apartments to rent. Uh, for six months. And usually we're finding that the majority of folks do stay on in those rental situations. 
and as well as decompressing those folks to go back to places that are safe. And if it requires, you know, windows and doors and some light repairs and reconstruction, that's what we do as well. We've also been doing construction on sort of like dormitories where you can have your own space, but share uh, and your own bathroom, but share like a kitchen area. So we feel like, again, you need to provide different options and not just one thing to be able to be, you know, accommodating to the different needs of different people. So that's what Ukraine looks like right now. We're going to be doubling down and working more on building bomb shelters for classrooms, unfortunately, but those can be easily transformed into technology centers in the future when this is over. And so we're very excited about putting the technology component into it. We're focusing on water access, not just providing water every day, but actual water systems. We're very focused on sort of long-term systems solutions. In Maui, it's very interesting because initially when we were plan- when we were responding, a lot of the coordination groups and the agencies and the organizations on the ground were saying, please do not send any come down, do not do not come down with any more water, any more food, or any more clothing. And that's what we see. They were throwing these things away because there was just such a huge flood of those materials. So this is the thing that we see often when you get such a high profile response or a a crisis, it's incredible how amazing people are and how giving people are. But the giving part needs to match with what people need and when they need it. So what we find often is that there is a lot of overgiving in the beginning and undergiving in the recovery phase. And that's where people really need to dig in. So it's right now when sort of the cameras are gone, you know, the focus isn't on Maui anymore that, you know, people need help to have longer term midterm solutions for housing. So one of the things that we've been doing initially, when we went down, we did some cash programming, provided some cash support to the most affected communities, which included undocumented workers and folks that really kind of are, are fall out of the system or are too afraid to go to into any system. And now we're also working with family members or friends and neighborhoods who have taken in the folks that have been displaced. So, you know, after a few weeks, after a few months, you know, we all can sympathize, you know, having house guests becomes really, really taxing. So we want to support those families who have taken the affected folks in and make sure that they're getting support and they're encouraged to keep those families in those safe environments. We'll be right back. Are you looking for an easy and effective way to boost your nonprofit's donations? Look no further than DonorBox, the online fundraising platform that streamlines your fundraising efforts, maximizes donations, and simplifies giving for your supporters. With DonorBox, you can create beautiful donation forms, accept digital wallet payments, track donations, and send auto receipts. And the best part? There are no setup or monthly fees and no long-term contracts required. So what are you waiting for? Visit DonorBox.org today to get started. That is www.DonorBox.org. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. I wanted to let you know that I've recently become a professionally certified coach. With my nearly 30 years of nonprofit experience, I know firsthand how hard leaders work. I also know how important it is to have someone you can call on to get help with the barriers and leadership challenges you will face both professionally and personally. 
I really want people to thrive and become all they were meant to become by providing coaching and consulting services. So if coaching is something you've always been interested in, but weren't quite sure what it was all about, I encourage you to reach out. You can go to my website, robharder.com, find out a little bit more information about what I provide, or simply just email me at rob at robharder.com. Again, it's rob at R-O-B-H-A-R-T-E-R.com. I would be happy to provide a free sample coaching session so you can determine if coaching is for you. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, thank you, first of all, all you're doing from both of those locations. I love how you had that approach is different depending on what the circumstances, the long-term nature of the Ukraine war, sadly. And then of course, Maui, that was so interesting. I've had other people on the show with large relief organizations that have mentioned that oftentimes there's so much of response. They're just overwhelmed on the, the home country that's receiving all these supplies. And yet, yeah, then when the recovery stage kicks in, all of a sudden, no one's there. And they're like, could you please come back now, right? It's just very interesting. So feast or famine almost a little bit. Now, getting back to your unique approach, uh, when it comes to the community, really connecting relationally with the people of the community, that's one of the things you really are strong in. And that's one of your key uh, core values, if you will. How is that been so important to you? And why do you think other relief agencies uh, are not able to do that or just for some reason don't choose to go that route in terms of that style of how you reach out? What have you found again of why some people do as a you know, relief in a certain way that's maybe just not quite as relationally driven? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure exactly the barriers or the challenges to it. I know it does take a lot of patience and a lot of sort of, I guess, commitment to stay a certain amount of time because I think you know, one of the things that is important to communities is that they do feel that, you know, they are not just looking at a short-term partner. And I think that we try to, A, one of the most important things is for us to make sure that we're hiring from the community to lead the response for us. And secondly, is to look at like, you know, not just these short-term solutions, but how can we respond in a way that has a long-term effect and builds in some resilience in those communities, which are already there. Like those systems are already there. People are already thinking in those terms. I think it's just easier as outsiders to come in and only think, you know, short-term, short-term. So it's really sort of, you know, giving the space or supporting the space that people are already taking to think in terms of how do I rebuild my life again, right? How do we rebuild this community again? And that's what we try to do. And I think it takes a lot of trust building, a lot of humility, and a lot of respect for these communities that are extremely, extremely strong and know exactly what they want and how they want it. Yeah. Now, well said on that. Well, as you've done this now for, uh, what, about 13 years, what have been some of the biggest hurdles when it comes to getting relief to those who need it most? What have you bumped into? I think really... You know, I'm just thinking about Sudan, for example, where we have a cash program with these incredible women's groups that are out there. I think the hardest thing is getting people to know and be aware of the crises that are so extreme. And it's so driven sort of by the media right now. You know, nobody's speaking about Sudan. There's not a lot of funding from there. It's such a struggle. but doesn't mean that it's not just as critical. And it is. 
we found this with Pakistan as well. We responded to the Pakistan flooding where 30% of the entire country was underwater for months. Oh, wow. 30%. Yes. Wow. And villages, entire villages were completely wiped out. Wow. And the amount of devastation and difficulty to get back on their feet is probably one of the worst that I've seen in Pakistan because there's such extreme levels of poverty where the flooded hit. And again, you know, not a lot of information or not a lot of attention was brought to these places. And so I think the biggest challenge is really how do we get the attention and the the space and the support that's needed for these places? Yeah. Wow. That's an interesting example. Yeah. Real quick, we're going to talk a little bit about fundraising. Obviously, that's a big need for you, for all nonprofits, I should say, and certainly for you as well. Where do you get most of your funding? So we have a really interesting funding model in that, you know, we have a portion, the majority of our funding actually comes from institutional donors. That's the government, the U.S. government, U.N. agencies, American Red Cross, and they are incredible partners, but they also are very large and also do not do the the immediate work on the ground. That's what we do. We get on the ground and we kind of do proof of concept and we're able to immediately get materials on the ground and respond quickly and figure out sort of, you know, what's the best way for us to support this community. It's those critical few weeks to months that it takes time for these larger institutions to kind of then, you know, figure out how to do the granting process and where it's going. The only way that we're allowed to do that is through flexible, unrestricted dollars. And that comes from the general public. That comes from, you know, just folks that that give generously, you know, high net worth individuals, which actually in our overall budget represents a much smaller amount than the institutional funding. But it has such a heavy weight to it because it does allow us to do the actual work that then the other institutions can do, can look at that and take us to scale. Interesting. Okay. Well said. And then continue on that theme of fundraising. You know, we are definitely in a 24 hour news cycle that's on the phone all the time. You know, you got social media updates, you've got regular just news updates. They're constantly reporting on these various new tragedies almost every day. There's a new tragedy, right? You can learn about. And then there's ones like the one in Sudan, for example, that we haven't heard about, at least in the mainstream media for a long time. And yet I know it's been an ongoing, terrible conflict there, actually. How do you keep your organization core, the mission and the work you're doing front and center on donors' minds when there's this 24-hour news cycle and it's really difficult to keep people focused on what you're offering? Yeah, it's really difficult because we also understand there's like a level of like, you know, fatigue, right? You know, people are disheartened and, and, you know, when they only hear about just like, oh, the world is crashing, the world is crashing, you know, you kind of get numb to that. That's why us, you know, when I look at the work that we do, like I get inspired and I feel like my life has changed in a positive way because of the hope and the incredible just miracles that regular people are performing in the face of such adversity. So, you know, that's the way that we feel like is it has should be and is the best way to inform people of what's happening in the world. Yes, we need you because there is this thing happening, but on the flip side, like there's just amazing people doing things that would blow our minds. Like we have these w- internal webinars that we do of our teams that are responding so that everybody kind of knows what everyone's doing. 
I cannot not cry in, in those webinars. You know, there's all these amazing folk that just, you know, talk about like, I never thought I would be doing this work. I was just, you know, a retiree. I'm thinking about Malva from Kentucky, the Kentucky floods that happened um, last year. Um, you know, she was a retiree and she just jumped in and started essentially working for us and started doing case management to get people support for from FEMA and then you know, got all this funding to be able to help people rebuild their homes. And she's been still working at it for the last, you know, year plus, and she's just a powerhouse, you know? And so it's inspiring to see again, regular folk. And this is how it is in Ukraine, you know, meeting mothers who haven't worked in 30 years that all of a sudden are managing an informal shelter, taking in 10 families, you know, and it's an incredible thing to see what us humans can do for each other. Yeah, no, well said. And just out of curiosity and how your organization is organized, how many of your staff or people like this in Melva, I think it was in Kentucky, how many are volunteers and how many are paid staff? So we mostly have paid staff. Um, we have very few volunteers now. I think during COVID, we had a huge amount of volunteers. But in these crises for us, it's very important. I mean, we'll take them kind of on a case-by-case basis, like in for example, hurricanes, it's great to get volunteers to kind of do muckouts, which is great. But for the most part, for these longer term things, we do have employees. I wonder. Okay, got it. And, and you mentioned COVID. Did COVID impact your organization? And if so, did it impact how you did programs or your services? Or maybe it didn't impact it. What was your, what's been your organization post-COVID? Oh, man, it completely changed our lives. It changed our organization fundamentally. I think we were about 10 US-based staff before COVID and overall maybe like 150. Now we're probably at the 300 mark, but we had exploded during COVID to 3,000. Oh, that wow. Was, yeah, in a matter of months. Oh my goodness. Wow. So what we did during COVID, you know, we are not, we hadn't done health activities in the United States ever. And when COVID hit, we jumped into the testing space immediately in March of 2020. And we sat down with and with folks who were kind of in this space and figured out this testing component and all the pieces that go with it. And we sat down with the Los Angeles mayor, Mayor Garcetti, and he asked us to partner with him to start doing testing. It exploded. We ended up running the world's largest testing site where peak of COVID, we were doing about fifty-five to sixty thousand tests per day. In the that's peak a of lot. Wow, that's yeah. incredible. And that was across the United States. And then we were also doing a lot of wraparound services, food hygiene kits, benefits navigation. We did contact tracing in Georgia. We were in, I think, six to eight cities. We responded in Navajo Nation providing support, isolation homes. We built isolation shelters with, you know, insulated windows and doors, the whole nine yards. Partnered with another partner to do food. We did our hygiene kits and we also supported a partner, Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health on testing and vaccinations. So we exploded during COVID. That's incredible. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Was it a combination of the need was high 
and you marketed really well and people heard about it? Or is it a little more organic that just people started hearing about core and then just sound like the Los Angeles situation maybe is part of how you grew was just people learned about it. And then it just exploded all at the same time. Tell us about that growth and how did you manage it? So we did no marketing. It was really when we started in Los Angeles and then the governor of California asked us after seeing that we had started in this space, asked us to expand out to Bakersfield to three other cities in California, which we did. And then word got around and we got phone calls from, you know, the Chicago mayor. Lori Lightfoot was a phenomenal early adopter where she called and she said, you need to come out here and help us figure this out. So we went out immediately and provided the support and basically partnered with the the mayor's office to do all of their testing and vaccinations eventually in the city. The same thing happened in Navajo Nation when people had seen one of the big things for us that was important was, okay, we figured out all the component pieces to these things. Let's put this down on paper. Let's share it with everybody that we can so that people can replicate this and do this as much as possible. We were on so many coordination calls with the NIH, with these coordination groups that Rockefeller Foundation started with all the mayors, as well as this other group that Atul Gawande had started. And so we were very focused on sharing every single one of our learnings because we know we knew in the middle of it, like even with, you know, we ended up doing about, I don't know, 7 million tests and 3 million vaccinations and thousands of hygiene, so whatever it was, it still wasn't going to be on just us to be able to provide everything for the country. So we really, really made it an effort to kind of share everything. How do you set up in, you know, in, how do you set up a mobile unit? How do you set up a stadium sized, you know, vaccination drive? How do you do contact tracing? How do you do uh, set up inside an FQHC or how do you set up in a barbershop? So it's all those things that we put open source and shared for everyone to use. That is really impressive. Again, well done. And thank you for all you did. You obviously just impacted so many people here in the United States, let alone what you were doing globally. So for my listeners who are listening to this, I think they're going to find out they want to learn more about you and more about CORE. How would they find out more about you and CORE? Where would you send them? I would go to coreresponse.org. All of our programs are there. All of our data is there. They can even probably pull up our, our how to set up a mobile unit for testing. <laughs> there you go. You're well known for that now. <laughs> well done. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe I'll close with one more question. Thank you for that. And so my listeners, check it out. It's really fascinating in the fact you've grown so much. Maybe the last question then would to ask you, because you've had so much success with this and government agencies were coming to you. In an ideal world, I get this question a lot on my show and with nonprofit leaders and seminars and conferences I go to, how best can government agencies work with nonprofits? Because in many ways, your story is one where you brought this solution or this system, if you will, and then government agencies actually said, hey, nonprofit core, come and teach us, show us how to do this, basically do it for our government agency over here. So that was a, that's a great example. And you're not alone. There's a lot of organizations that do that on the larger end typically. But yeah, what, what's that ideal relationship in your mind between government and nonprofits when it comes to working together? You know, I don't think that we would have been able to do as much if we didn't recognize our you know, where everybody fit, right? Government can only do so much. They have incredible resources and can go to scale. 
but they don't, they're not fast. And they have a lot of like processes, like hiring takes six, you know, six months to do and stuff. And so that's where we really fit in. A, we take a lot of risks that those agencies cannot. And I think that government recognizing that, and this is where I have so much respect and so much love for Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles. He knew exactly what we could do and where we could dock into each other. And I think not having that sort of, you know, mistrustful, like, you know, ego or that, no, this is my space or this, no, he immediately recognized what we could do and, you know, kind of fill the gaps that the city had that allowed us to kind of explode and kind of grow together. You know, we couldn't have done it without his office and his management of the fire department, but they couldn't have done it without us. And so we knew how to dock in with each other. That was a very special relationship. And I think, you know, again, the mayor of Chicago understood that as well. I think everybody needs to understand that not a single entity is going to figure out these incredibly large intractable problems like a global pandemic. And so, you know, kind of being humble and coming in with, this is what we can do. This is what we can figure out and focusing on the operational piece to it and the brass tacks, I think that's where the success has shown. It is understanding where we can really, really work together. Again, it all comes down to partnership and collaboration. Well, it's such a great example. And thanks for sharing that. And I think, boy, you, I completely 100% agree that not one entity, no one entity can really provide all the resources for these huge problems that we're dealing with. And so I love what you've done. I think this is such a great model. And I think that hopefully again continues to get replicated. I mean, obviously during COVID, you were asked to replicate this in Chicago and other places. So well done. In addition to get to all you're doing globally. So, and thanks for all you're doing. It's You're making a huge impact, making a big difference. And thanks for taking time out to be on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having us. Hey, friends. Well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better. This podcast is sponsored by DonorBox. DonorBox, helping you help others with the best donation forms in the business.